Aloha on this Aloha Friday, January 19th. I'm Catherine Cruz. Mahalo for joining us on The Conversation. The newly stood up Navy Closure Task Force Red Hill appears to be off to a rough start. A community group maintains the Navy is trying to strong arm a process agreed to under a work order issued by the Environmental Protection Agency. We look at some of the issues affecting Native Hawaiians that are on the legislative landscape this session. And as cleanup of the burn zone in Lahaina gets underway, Maui County shares what property owners need to know about the timeline for debris removal. Plus, the Peace Point uh, project may be more important than ever in these polarized times, not just in this country, but across the globe. And we remember Kalopapa. tuned to the conversation here on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. The December meeting did not go well. Those are the words of a military official explaining why the Navy would not attend a meeting about the Red Hill fuel tanks that had been scheduled for last night. The community representation initiative had been established by the EPA in a work order following the fuel contamination of drinking water two years ago. The Navy pulled out of a Red Hill, uh, the, the Red Hill community meeting this week, saying it would look to meetings in February and March, indicating it wants to restructure the gatherings to make them more productive. During the meeting, we heard from members Walter Chun and Sierra Club Hawaii Representative David Frankel. We start with Chun, who is an Oahu resident. There's a comment in this um, email that says the December meeting didn't go well. And I think um, that's one of the things that I, I take offense to. There's 10 members of the CRI that were elected by the people, and we speak for the people individually. We're not a specific organized group. So there's 10 different people with 10 different personalities, and we, um, a lot of us have some limited patience, especially me with the fact that we're not being able to get um, any true transparency um, or, any, or being able to build trust. So. Members of the public did get a little bit um, irritated and angry, and that happens. If they're going to continue to lie to us or not tell us the truth, um, give us information, people will react publicly like they have in previous meetings before the CRI. Uh, I, I would think that the Navy and EPA will take that home as a lesson. We are not acting poorly, we're acting out of frustration because we're being treated the way we're being treated. The Navy does not have the legal authority to restructure the CRI, but it would like to because um, it is not, it, la it is unable to control us. The Navy would like to be able to deliver its talking points to us, set the agenda without us being able to obtain the information we need. So, the the Navy has proposed a series of apparently private meetings with us to discuss before the February meeting, but at least some of us are not interested or willing to do that. They can make their pitch in February at our meeting itself to the public and let everyone know what changes they would like to see. And as with requests that we make to them, I'm sure we will 
take their issues under advisement and give it all the due weight that it deserves. That was David Frankel and Walter Chun, who were members of the CRI. Also uh, on that group, two military wives who are suing the Navy over the fuel contamination, and there appears to be concerns that the form is being used to try to get information that could be used in the litigation. Just hours before the scheduled meeting, there was a gathering of a different sort at Pearl Harbor, a military planking ceremony following a tradition to mark the start of de- the decommissioning of a Navy facility. The Joint Task Force Red Hill is in the process of turning over the reins to the new Navy closure tank force Red Hill. Uh, Admiral Stephen Barnett is to take over from Rear Admiral John Wade in March. Here's Barnett. It's not often that, that sailors, and when I say sailors, I mean our military sailors and our civilian sailors, are plank owners. Plank owners is a very important part of our history, and to stand up a command is very big. To decommission a command, which eventually we would be de- decommissioned, which is where the term plank owner comes from, is very big. I've been a plank owner in a couple of commands. This is There's none more important than this because it's directly impacting to the community. So it's reaching out into the community because we're going to be here as long as the job takes. So that's what's important about this ceremony here. It's just the beginning. We have a long way to go. Uh, we're at initial operating capability right now. When we get the rest of our individuals on board and Uh, finish our left seat, right seat turnover with the Joint Task Force. Uh, Towards the end of March, um, everything will be handed off to us. And when asked about the military's decision to not take part in the evening meeting, Barnett essentially said the decision was out of his hands. It was made by top brass in Washington, D.C., who are policymakers and who are signatories on that work order, the U.S. Navy, the Defense Logistics Agency, and the Environmental Protection Agency. EPA officials issued a statement saying it's committed to the process and looks forward to meeting with the parties in February. The CRI group, again, is not willing to meet privately with the EPA and the Navy and maintains it will take up concerns at the next public meeting. So stay tuned. As the 2024 legislative session gets underway, we take a look at issues important to many in the Native Hawaiian community. HBR reporter Ku'uve Hirishi joins us today. Good morning. Good morning. Uh, when it comes to Native Hawaiian issues, this uh, legislative session, much of this year's focus will be on unfinished business. Uh, last year, the Office of Hawaiian Affairs found itself in that contentious battle with legislators over uh, developing housing on its Kaka'akomakai lands, known as Hakuone. Oha trustee Brickwood Galateria says the agency is putting a pause on its housing plans for now, uh, but that doesn't mean they're going to scrap the entire plan for Hakuone. In terms of Kaka'akomakai, uh, you know, we want to get some wins going on on that one. You know, I think uh, when you're overly ambitious, you, you tend to get on the the losing side, but I think for stuff that we can actually grasp and work with the legislature on to make that place retail commercial is a good thing. If we can get started on that one and then eventually move into a little bit more ambitious uh, items. And then, you know, we have a a brand new CEO and so we're very optimistic about Stacy and what she's bringing to the organization. Galateria is, of course, uh, referring to Stacy Ferreira, the new OHA CEO and a former budget chief for the Senate Ways and Means Committee that mm. 
legislative acumen was uh, one of the most important factors in the trustee's decision to hire her. Uh, so we should see if that helps uh, move things along in order to move forward on its Hakuone plans. OHA will be asking legislators for critical support to fund infrastructure repairs on the wharf there, uh, work that will cost an estimated $65 million, uh, an effort by uh, Senate Ways and Means Chair Donovan De La Cruz last year to get that funded died uh, in the House. So we'll see if they'll pick that up again. Uh, OHA trustees approved four measures for introduction this session, including one that would uh, include a seat for OHA on the State Board of Agriculture. Uh, representation on state boards is also the focus of proposals by the Department of Hawaiian Homelands. Oriana Leal, government relations at DHA head at the Department of uh, Hawaiian Homelands, says the agency is seeking a seat on the Hawaii Housing Finance and Development Corporation, the Hawaii Community Development uh, Authority, and the Commission on Water Resource Management. A lot of these boards deal with housing, but also with uh, water that goes to develop some of these housings. Uh, now, as a state agency, DHHL's proposals don't always make their way into governor's legislative package, sometimes because of budgetary constraints and other times because of philosophical differences. But uh, that was the case for the HHFDC and HCDA proposals. So I am really happy to share that one of the bills, the bill requesting representation on the Commission on Water Resource Management, has been included in governor's administrative package and that is a definite step forward for the department because that hasn't happened before and we all know that water is so integral to everything that we do. The Maui wildfires have definitely had a great impact on the attention that we put on by and the ways in which we would like to move forward not just as a department but as a as a state a welcome surprise, I think, for the department, uh, sort of having the governor's backing on a possible seat for the department on the Water Commission. Uh, under the state water code, the uh, Department of Hawaiian Homelands, or I should say the Hawaiian Homelands Trust, has uh, a prioritized uh, right to water. And so we've seen in recent years, maybe the last 10 or so years, the department going to the Water Commission asking for uh, sort of reservations of water for for future and current development so that they can ensure that there, there will be water once uh, the land is developed for housing. So that should be uh, interesting to watch. Uh, but the HHFDC and HCDA proposals, uh, according to Leal, are being picked up uh, by uh, Native Hawaiian caucus leaders, uh, Senator Kyokalole and Representative Daniel uh, Holt. So I think a total of 12 proposals from the Department of Hawaiian Homelands circulating this session, not all within the governor's package, uh, but looking to really help them use that $600 million through Act 279. And we'll see an update on that this session as well, because it still a sort of technical error in the act is the deadline mm. that's set for June 30th. Uh, so they're hoping to make that change um, this session in some of the proposals. But as bills, you know, continue to be introduced over the next, uh, or actually today, I think is a uh, you know, final deadline for uh, some of the non-administrative uh, uh, 
Bills trustee Galateria, who spent a decade in the state legislature prior to his OHA stint, says everyone should manage their expectations uh, this session because it is election year oh, and yes, nobody moves, nobody get hurt. Okay, well, um, now I know, like I said, they're still in the process of, of, uh, of introducing these bills, but have you seen anything come across from Mauna Kea? I have not seen a proposal on Mauna Kea just yet. Uh, there was a carryover from last session that was sort of um, trying to uh, clarify what is supposed to happen uh, with all of, you know, part of the conservation land, perhaps, uh, according to Lorraine and Norris, Senator Lorraine and Norris from Big Island. She had been making the case that they'd want some of that conservation land to stay under BLNR because BLNR has the experience. They've got mm-hmm. the um the staffing in place and you know um, that would be some an important kuleana to keep there but the authority is sort of in its first year still getting uh, on its feet just hired and uh, or in the process of hiring an executive director and so uh, those you know the authorities sort of taken the the uh, uh, stance that oh, well, let's wait till we get up and running before mm. we make any changes to the current you know structure they've got five years or four years left to get uh, transition into that uh, authority and transition into having um, stewardship over those lands. So yeah. we should see what comes of it. Yeah, it'd be interesting to see who they select because that will set the tone and, and see where that project goes. Um, and uh, you were there on opening day. I know that was a big day because yeah. it coincided with the Onipa'a, the commemoration of the overthrow and you know big crowds there always when it falls on the opening day, you know. There's a likelihood of a, a higher level of engagement around legislative measures and what's going on at the Capitol. And we'll probably see that a lot more uh, considering, you know, the uh, recovery of those on Maui and West uh, in Lahaina. Yeah, big showing of, of on opening day uh, from that community. Uh, all right. Well, thank you so much, Kuvehi. We know you'll be tracking these issues, uh, big ones and important ones to the Native Hawaiian community. Mahalo. Mahalo. We've been talking to HBR reporter Kuvehira Ishii. She was giving us a preview on Native Hawaiian issues that lawmakers hope to address in the upcoming legislative session. You can read more of her stories on our website, hawaiipublicradio.org. Support for The Conversation comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, which helps Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk shows. Mahalo to contributors PCAT, Pacific Center for Advanced Technology Training, and the Rice Partnership. Each week, New Dimensions explores the social, political, scientific, environmental, and spiritual frontiers with some of today's foremost social innovators, thinkers, scientists, and creative artists. Hi, I'm Carlene Montes de Oca. I'm the author of Dog as My Doctor, Cat as My Nurse. And next time on New Dimensions, I'll be talking about how our dogs and cats can help enhance our health and our well-being. Sunday morning at 11. Support for HPR comes from the National Kidney Foundation of Hawaii, helping to improve kidney health through virtual community health and education programs. Open to the public. Learn more about programs and services at kidneyhi.org.
This is The Conversation on statewide member-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Coming up, your backyard quiz. Onihoa, olehua, onihau, okaua, oahu, omolokai, olanai, omau, okaholabe, ohavai. As we wrap up this week, it kicked off the commemoration of Martin Luther King Jr.'s legacy. We spotlight a special connection that he had to the islands. In 1959, King visited the newly established 50th state and spoke at a Hawaii House of Representatives special session. He shared, as I think of the struggle that we are engaged in in the Southland, we look to you for inspiration as and as a noble example where you have already accomplished in the area of racial harmony and racial justice, what we are struggling to accomplish in other sections of the country. It was during this visit that he befriended a local minister, a friendship that was symbolized by the flower lei that King and other civil rights leaders wore in 1965 during the Selma to Montgomery march. The lei uh, were hand-delivered uh, by a five-person contingent who flew to Alabama to participate. For today's Backyard Quiz, can you name the Hawaii religious leader who bonded with King over the shared belief in nonviolence and social justice? Call 808-941-3689 or 877-941-3689 if you know the answer. Support for the Backyard Quiz comes from Nareed Hawaii, which supports nonprofits providing parents and children experiencing homelessness with opportunities to secure housing, including Family Promise of Hawaii. NareedHawaii.com. Do you love public radio? Would you like to join the team that puts your favorite HPR programs on the air? We may have the perfect job for you. HPR is hiring a full-time board operator. Audio editing and broadcasting experience are required, and skills as an on-air announcer are a plus. If this job opportunity is music to your ears, visit hawaiipublicradio.org slash jobs to learn more. Support for HPR comes from TS Restaurants and its Legacy of Aloha Foundation, supporting the Maui community and assisting those affected by the wildfires. More about how to help by searching tsrestaurants.com Legacy of Aloha. Lahaina property impacted by the August wildfire was cleared of debris yesterday. Debris removal in West Maui started earlier this week. It is a coordinated effort between several federal and local government agencies and private contractors. Residential and commercial property owners are allowed to participate, but they first have to complete the right of entry application process to be able to enter the burn zones. To help property owners understand that process and the timeline of the cleanup, Maui County scheduled two right-of-entry informational workshops. The first was held this past Saturday at Lahaina, Huna, Lahaina Luna High School. The Conversations, Russell Subiano talked to the county's planning and development chief, Aaron Wade, about what was shared with property owners. 
We had about 100 people show up in person on Saturday and another at least 55 that were participating via the chat on Facebook Live on Saturday. Okay. And then, I mean, several thousand views in addition to that, but lots. it was a great turnout for the type of workshop that it was. So the people that were able to attend, what kind of information was shared with them? I know you had a handful of guest speakers there to, to kind of cover different aspects of the right of entry. Yeah. So the initial discussion is about why the County of Maui chose and requested the assistance of FEMA and the Army Corps of Engineers and what it offers to individual property owners. So we share a little bit about how the cost of the cleanup is at no out-of-pocket cost to property owners and that if they sign up with a right of entry, that the cleanup will take place with FEMA's funding and assistance to do so. Then we shared a little bit about the process of debris removal. So the Army Corps of Engineers team is there to talk about how it plays out, like what are the logistics of it? what happens at each site, how is it being monitored for health and safety, all of those things. Basically, from the time you complete your right of entry to the time the property is deemed clean, um, what happens. So we go over that whole spectrum of what occurs. And then the archaeologist who's been brought in by FEMA and the Army Corps to sort of lead the efforts also shares what she's doing when she sees the right of entries, what she's looking for on the site plans, and any information about the property sites that helps her to do her work. You know, considering that at the start of the recovery process, you know, in, in the wake of, of the fires, there was a lot of misinformation going around, a lot of rumors that happened. What was the reason for for putting together these workshops? Was it in part to, you know, give the information to people so that there wouldn't be any misunderstandings? Um, you know, I just personally, I was uh, tasked with doing enrollment and outreach for debris removal. And I know I learn best in a format where I can have question and answer. And so um, because there's so many scenarios out there that people are trying to wrap their head around how do we I get debris removed from my specific site with my maybe unique circumstances we wanted to provide them a platform to share their circumstances and to give them answers to the best of our ability in that format and then that also educates the room you know and anybody who's there to listen so that if they know, oh, that's not my situation, but that is also my neighbor's situation. So I can tell them, you know, I think it helps to just provide more um, information and transparency through the process. One of the biggest milestones for the recovery process will be the actual debris cleanup. Can you talk about that timeline? When will it start and what will it entail? Yeah, so debris cleanup in Lahaina started on the 16th, and it's going to be continuing probably through the next 12 to 18 months throughout Lahaina. And it does entail, you know, for each property, the team goes on the property, they remove metals and concrete first, which are taken for recycling. And then they do the cleanup, which gets placed in a truck that has a plastic liner. Before leaving the site, it's burrito wrapped and heat sealed so that um, no dust or particulates can leave the truck 
during uh, transport and it'll be brought to the temporary debris site in Oluwalu. After the actual work of cleanup is done, they do soil testing. And so the final closeout of the property is a package that confirms the soil has been tested and, and determined to be clean. I read that information on the FEMA Army Corps requirement for historic preservation and cultural protection and how the archaeological and cultural monitors work in the field. Information on that was shared. You touched on it a little bit earlier. I know we lost some historical and culturally significant sites in the fire. Can you expand or, or elaborate on some of the information that was shared along those lines, along the historical or cultural preservation lines? Um, what I can offer is just a little information and background. There are several sites within Lahaina Town that have been contacted and have accepted assistance for shoring. So historic structures that still have viable standing walls have been receiving assistance from the state department, uh, the DAG's office, Mm -hmm. to do shoring at those sites. And, you know, we don't know yet at this time if they're going to be viable long term for preservation. But this is the first step in making that evaluation and being able to clean up around the walls and assessing the viability for those to either be rebuilt or to remain as historic structures within the district. I know we talked to Theo Morrison last week, uh, or maybe it was the week before, and she was saying that some of that work is is starting on, on some of her properties or her organization's properties. I know the yeah. workshop is not just for obtaining crucial information to this phase of the recovery, but also an opportunity for property owners to ask questions. What were some of the most common or most important questions attendees asked at this past Saturday's workshop? I think the most common question was, can I do debris cleanup? Or let me rephrase. The most common question was, can I sift for valuables if my neighbor is getting debris clean up at the same time. And of course, the Army Corps is going to be using best practices and managing every variable that they're able to manage during the cleanup process. But I think people have to make their own decisions about um, assessing risk and understanding whether they feel safe being on the neighboring property during cleanup. There will be air monitoring throughout the process and controlling, like I said, everything that we're able to control while we're out there in the field. The thing that folks do need to be aware of, though, is that there's going to be lots of heavy equipment and big machinery moving in these very tight little neighborhoods with narrow streets. And so, you know, being very aware and cautious whenever you're near heavy construction equipment is always important. If folks weren't able to make it to this past Saturday's workshop, or if they were kind of skeptical about its necessity. There is a second workshop coming up on Saturday, January 27th. Who should attend and why is it important to attend? Yeah, thanks. So, you know, we do have 80% of residential property owners who have started the process at least of filling out a right of entry. If you've started and have questions or haven't been able to complete your right of entry application, I think this is a great time to come and learn about what's actually needed. If you started and then had questions about, oh, how's this process going to unfold? We'll go through all of that and happy to answer questions about that. 
The other group that has been a little bit slow to take up filling out the right of entry has been commercial properties. And we just want folks to know the the program is residential and commercial properties are eligible for the free debris cleanup. So we want to make sure if even if you have a more complicated ownership structure, we can find ways and we've got a great team that's helping us assist different companies and owners down the path to make sure that you get the advantage of the cleanup process. And just to be clear, do property owners need to attend to participate in the government-sponsored cleanup option? They do not need to attend the workshop, no. You know, we already have over 1,600 applications in for rights of entry. And so if you're all set, that's fine if you're comfortable. If you just have questions about how this plays out and what the next steps are, you know, that's what they're there, we're there for, there to help answer any of those questions. Is there anything that you think that the public or those impacted, is there anything else that they should know about these workshops or about the right of entry process? I think it's important to know that it's started now. And so if people haven't taken the time to investigate what their alternatives are, this is starting to get urgent and there's a strong need, you know, both environmentally because we want to get the neighborhood cleaned up for community health and safety and the safety of the environment. And then also just time-wise and planning for an efficient process for the teams. Um, It is important that folks take the time to make a choice about what they would like to do with their property and allow us to assist if we can to get cleaned up in a timely way. Erin Wade, thank you so much for your time today. It was a pleasure. Thanks so much. That was Maui County's Erin Wade talking with HPR's Russell Subiano about the recent right of entry informational uh, workshops. They're being organized to help residents better understand the debris removal phase of uh, this recovery process. A second workshop is scheduled for Saturday, January 27th, a week from tomorrow, from 3 to 5.30 p.m. at Lahaina Luna High School. We'll have a link to more information on the conversation page of our website after the show. Support for HPR comes from Hawaiian Airlines, introducing the new Boeing 787, featuring custom-designed Lehoku suites to its fleet starting April 2024. Schedules and reservations at hawaiianairlines.com. This Saturday, HPR presents Sean Conley, live at the Atherton Performing Arts Studio. Conley is the principal bassist for the Hawaii Symphony Orchestra. He is also a member of globally acclaimed groups like Silk Road Ensemble and The Knights. For tickets and more information, visit hprtickets.org. Sponsored by Farm Lovers Markets. Support for The Conversation comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, whose contributors help Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk shows. Mahalo to contributor Anchor Systems Maui.
Now it's time to lay the answer to today's Backyard Quiz. Earlier in the show, we remembered a famous image from Martin Luther King Jr.'s 1965 march in Selma, Alabama. In photographs of that historic episode, King, John Lewis, uh, Ralph Abernathy, and others can be seen wearing flower lei that were hand-delivered from Hawaii. They were worn as a symbol of the marchers' peace inten- peaceful intentions and harken back to a September 1959 visit King made to our islands. In his speech to the Hawaii House of Representatives, he said, If democracy is to live, segregation must die. Segregation is a cancer in the body politic, which must be removed before our democratic health can be realized. In a real sense, the shape of the world today does not permit us the luxury of an endemic democracy. During his time in Hawaii, Hawaii befriended Reverend Abram Makaka, pastor of Koehau Church, and the answer to today's backyard quiz. It was Akaka who sent the lei with a group from Hawaii to King in 1965. That was today's quiz question, and we do not have a winner. If you have an idea for a quiz, send it to talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. You know, we started off the week with the Martin Luther King Jr. holiday, and today we tip our hats to an international peace project created in his honor. 25 years ago, a poetry contest was started in his honor and for his legacy, and we talked to Melinda Gahn and Gwenda George about the Literacy Project and how far it's come. We started this project during the summer solstice in 1996, a long time ago, here on Maui, and our aim was to ask everyone worldwide to contribute poetry on peace and nonviolence. And we, and we have this huge goal of taking the peace poem to the United Nations by the year 2000 for the millennium. This was just this impossible dream. We put it out there, and we're the Maui Live Poets, and we can do this thing. So that is what we started, and that is what we did. We had a marvelous ceremony in Lahaina, and um, the mayor sent her lines, and we had poets and artists and teachers and all sorts of people. But the poem was begun by a six-year-old child mm-hmm. because we wanted the clarity and the beauty and the innocence of, of a child. So little six-year-old Libby Barker, wherever you are, she was <laughs> from Florida, and she was visiting us in Lahaina. And we were right down, right across from the famous banyan tree that is still living, we hope. And um, there was Libby, and she put down her first lines for the poem, which is, everyone's heart is like everyone's, and I hope we can all find peace in this world. Not bad for a six-year-old child, wouldn't you say? So Libby started it, and we hit the ground running, but somewhere in about 1999, we kind of looked up. It was Dr. King Day, and, you know, there was just nothing happening. There was a march on Maui, and that was all. So we came up with this idea of doing this outreach to the schools and having a statewide contest. And so we did our very first mail-out. We talked to the Department of Education, and they were kind to us, and they sent us their active list, and we, oh, we worked. That was before computers were what they are today, I assure you. (laughs) And we started our very first Dr. King Peace Poetry Contest, and we had the first awards in the year 2000, and the first awards were at Borders Bookstore here on Maui, and in Oahu, we had them at the Honolulu Holly with the generosity of Mayor Jeremy Harris, who hosted us there. And so 
we sort of got off to a magical running start, and we brought in the outer islands, the big island, Hawaii island, and, um, of course, Kauai, and even Molokai has been very active in our contest year after year. So the beauty of the contest is that we ask every teacher to send their children's poetry to us. And during Black History Month, they can send it in by email or they can put it into an envelope and send it to us as they get it. It's wonderful. And we go through the poems and we pick out two winners from each class. So every child has a good chance of winning. And we hold statewide assemblies to honor these kids on each island. And it's a wonderful, joyous occasion. The winners are invited with their parents and their teachers and principals to come to our awards, and they recite their award-winning poem, and they receive a certificate of honor from the mayor of that respective county, whichever county we are in, and a prize furnished by the International Peace Poem Project. Well, it's terrific, you know, to think that this has been going on for two and a half decades, and it kicks off with the MLK Day. And, you know, Gwen, jump in here, because you're an educator, and you know how important it is to get our young people to learn our history. And I, I totally agree, and I so support this project, and I realize its value, its importance. I, I think that if we can get young people to understand the importance of peace, the, under, the understanding of communication, if something, if there's a problem, rather than resorting to violence as some other alternative that's not peaceful. And so these poems, when you sit and listen to these children, oh my gosh, listening to some of these little kindergarten kids talk about what peace is, you know, and having kids say that, when they have peace, how good their bodies feel. And another thing I wanted to say is, last year I remember being at the event here on the Big Island. Not only were the participants, the kids there, their families. There was one kid whose mother, father, grandparents, aunties, and uncles, they all came to support it. And I thought, what a wonderful thing if children get to help teach peace, you know? And people, you know, people listen to them because they're they're just so engaging. It's just such a lovely opportunity. Yes, and and I think too that um, I'm also a retired teacher, as is Gwen. But as teachers, have a concrete exercise in the classroom where you mm, have an opportunity to say something original and truthful. Um, many programs in the state I know have engaged in wonderful civil rights uh, history programs and such because of our project. They've had musicians come into the schools and learned uh, the marching songs that Dr. King used, and it's been a vibrant part of some of the curriculums in some schools, and we're so proud of that. And as a retired teacher, I know all you teachers out there, please get in touch with us and let's get your kids into our contest this year. Come to peacepoem.org. That's our website. It's funny because uh, just the other week we were talking to Maya Satoro with the Peace Institute up at the University of Hawaii and, and Seeds of Peace. And Gwen, you know, it, it, when you talked about, you know, these young children, you know, being the seeds of peace, that's that's really what they are. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, I think about, it's cliche, but I think world citizens have been bamboozled because they don't understand oneness. 
and I'm always trying to just as simply as I can say to people when we're re- referencing others that you don't have to say their race. You know, well, he's a this, he's a that, or that. Just, just he's a friend. His name is John. Her name is Mary. We don't have to say their race because the way it's used, it tends to separate us. And if we can understand the oneness, you know, I just want to say my husband and I, we were married 57 years. He passed away three years ago. We met in the civil rights movement. We knew each other three weeks when we got married 57 years ago. He's German-American. I'm African-American. And it was a wonderful gathering when our families got together. It was like the United Nations. We were all, you know, different cultures and backgrounds and found out it didn't matter. We still loved each other. And that's what I think this uh, Internet, this peace foundation that Melinda's doing, I think that's what it stresses, the importance of knowing that it doesn't matter if your eyes are slanted, if your hair is curly or kinky or your eyes are blue or your skin or what, or you're fat, or, it doesn't matter. We, if we can get to people's hearts and realize that we all have things to share, we all have something that's valuable, and we just have to be willing to be patient and listen. What do teachers need to know to get their students to enter this contest, or what do parents need to know if they want their children or grandchildren to uh, uh, to submit a poem? Go to peacepoem.org, all one word. That's our website, and you can send me an email right from there, and I will send you the information. I will, or we can call and speak to each other. I'm delighted to welcome new teachers and to welcome returning teachers of all kinds and from all islands and from the mainland as well. We cannot email the world, but, <laughs> but we have had schools from all over this country jump in. And so I just want to say, in your, list, in your listening audience, you never know where this will go. Peacepoem.org. And then but, uh, what about the deadline? When do these things have to be submitted? We ask for your entries to be submitted by February 28th. 2024, during Black History Month, and we have a a judging process, and we'll send out the winner letters by the third week in March, because we begin our ceremonies during Poetry Month in April. We'll start the awards assembly, so it's a a timed thing. But uh, in terms of everybody worldwide, we ask everybody to send us their lines on peace. It doesn't have to rhyme, and it can be in the language of your choice. Just send it to peacepoem.org, and your lines on peace will be added to the peace poem. We did take it to the United Nations, and we're still working on it, and our goal is to return when it is the world's largest poem, over 200,000 lines. To the adults who are listening, they're just continuous wars. You know, I'm just shocked that we cannot sit down and figure out ways that we can communicate without having to kill each other. And for this this program, it's an opportunity to spread world peace, to up-level the consciousness. It's extremely important what this, what this project's about. It's extremely important. Gwen, I know you have a poem that you wanted to share yes. with us. It's short. It's Tell us about it. Is it just a dream? Okay. Dr. King said, I have a dream. I ask, is it just a dream? It can be much more than a dream, a better world soothing frequencies, inviting a peaceful stirring, an equal share of the goodness, signaling the arrival of what can be, taking responsibility for our thoughts, words, actions, many obstacles 
still have to vanish. Looking under, around, and on that which has always been, even today the dream still exists. But we can do it. We can do it. We have the necessary tools to make a better world. It's in our bone marrow, inside the connections which are eternal, patience, forgiveness, compassion, love. The dream becomes a reality. Imagine the harmonious blend we all create. Help is on the way. We are it. We can do it. Help is on the way. We can do it. We are it. Is it just a dream? All right. Well, thank you so much, Gwen and Melinda, for for uh, sharing that. And uh, we hope our listeners out there will uh, answer the call and submit a poem. Oh, I hope they will. I just want to take just a moment and to thank the teachers that have helped us year after year. We want to thank the Polynesian Voyaging Society of Hawaii, who donates to us images through OEV TV mm-hmm. for our yearly um, prizes we send to the children. Um, we work closely with the Hokulea and their crew on their peaceful worldwide voyage, and we are so delighted to have the support of artists such as Davo and Dick Sargent's Gallery, both of Lahaina, both hoping to rebuild in Lahaina, and to thank all of you and invite you all to come to the contest. Dr. Martin Luther King is calling. And that was Melinda Gon and Gwen George talking to us about the International Peace Poem Project created 25 years ago in honor of Martin Luther King Jr. The contest kicked off this week and entries will be accepted through February as part of Black History Month. He was for equality For all people You and me Full of love and goodwill As part of commemorating January as Kalopapa Month We turn to a little known story About a nurse that spent a decade On the remote Molokai Peninsula Ruth Friedman is originally from Israel Uh, She along with her healing harp Were recruited to tend to Hansen's disease patients You uh, may have seen Friedman over the years. She's now in her 80s, but she was playing at events around town before the pandemic. And during the COVID shutdown, she wasn't able to publicly play the harp. So she turned her musical skills to transcribing a collection of Negro spirituals. She first discovered the compilation by African-American composer Henry Thacker Burley in a music shop in Nevada. Some of the songs were more than 100 years old. Thanks to Friedman, they have been uh, published by Lion and Healy Harps out of Chicago, Illinois. Here's a rebroadcast of our 2021 interview with Friedman. I was just passing a music store, and I can't resist, like a dress store. You want to see, is there something new that will fit? And I saw this box with sale items, and on the top it said 12 Negro spirituals. Well, I wasn't interested. I passed it by because I'm Jewish. But at the same time, I had just looked inside, and it looked rather harpistic. And that is something that was appealing to me, the sale also. So I bought it and took it home. It was so beautifully corded, such development. I was so entranced. I went back. This man had written about a 100 art songs as well as transcribing them and printing out the spirituals. He set it down after he was recruited 
from the New York Conservatory of Music by Booker T. Washington, who was looking for somebody to take him on summer trips so that he could give his speeches, yet the ex-slaves or sharecroppers go into his college. When he first got there on a work scholarship... So he was a descendant of a slave? Yes, his grandson. And the grandfather took him and his little brother around when they had to guide him through the streets, and he would sing to the boys because he couldn't tell them stories and couldn't read a book. He had such a beautiful voice. The grandson happened to inherit that virtue, and he became a singer in their choirs and then launched out into being a wedding singer until he was discovered. Now, who was the director of New York Conservatory of Music at that time? He had just come in. His name was Anton Dvorak, and nobody knew that he was trying to find from little hurdy-gurdies or whatever street music he could hear, the music of America. He was writing a symphony that he would call the New World Symphony, and this was his discovery. When he heard this black student, I believe he was 26, washing the floors at night, and singing with his beautiful baritone voice. He said, this is Anton Dvorak, he said, change this man's work program so that he sings for me each evening for my supper, the plantation songs. And this was the a story, but he could not put it into his New World Symphony because his colleagues were so adverse to it. And Anton Dvorak said, what do you mean? This is the freshest music I've found on this side of the water. But he didn't. He left all the spirituals out, and the closest thing is maybe in the second movement of his New World Symphony, which had its opening premiere at Carnegie. Almost one of the first Carnegie performances given shortly before Anton Dvorak returned to Bohemia. Well, so so basically, though, he recognized the passion in these Negro spirituals. Exactly right. And so then he told Perry, before he went back to Bohemia, he says, give these melodies to the world. But where I found it, it was solos for a singer with the background music, you know, some chords here and there. And also they had arrangements, but nothing was ever uh, written for a solo instrument or piano. Tell us about how you turned to the harp for healing. I have to say one thing, it is the most healing of any instrument, and this is from Arthur Harvey, a professor in music therapy at UH. He says, why is it so therapeutic? Because of its resonance, the resonance from its deep body. Now, you were a nurse at Kalopapa, and you brought your harp with you. Yes. <laughs> it's my furniture. It follows me everywhere. It really is. It's my treasure, and it's my distraction, and I only picked it up in college. So you were able to uh, play this harp for the residents there at Kalopapa. Correct. But the one thing is, that it was the sister who played the organ, and I think it helped me get that job. So they put it into the church, and the sister there would have me accompany 
whatever they were doing for uh, the choir, a beautiful choir of the patients. In Latin, they couldn't change because so many patients had become blind. So it was sort of known as the last Latin mass in Hawaii. And this is where, where I played. But once I heard a black man singing. He wasn't black, but the medicine turned his skin dark. And he was just singing, Nobody knows the trouble I've seen. So I took him, walked him over to the church. The harp had just come in. And I sat him down, and I asked him to sing it, and I played with the harp. Thank goodness I had that in my little notebook. And his voice was so deep, so resonant, so heartfelt. And the height of the little church there, St. Francis Church, was so much that it carried everything. And he just sang with all his heart. And then we made a little program that I recorded the next day. And that was Ruth Friedman talking about harp therapy. And the patient she was uh, talking about was uh, Makio Malo, Kalopapa's storyteller uh, who died in 2021, one week shy of his 87th birthday. Ruth Friedman shared this recording of Makio's song with us. it for this Aloha Friday. Coming up next week, preserving and protecting Chinatowns across the country. Our program is produced by Russell Subiano, Lillian Song, and Savannah Harriman-Pote. Backyard Quiz, written for us by John DeMello. Theme music, courtesy of Gypsy 808. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us on Monday. Pick up the conversation. <laughs>